Hello and welcome to Halfwit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long ago. Yeah, what do we got on the docket today, Kylie? So this week, we're going to delve into some of the U.S.'s not-so-nice history. Well, that's most of it, so I'm ready. Uh-huh. So we're heading back to 1892 in New Orleans, Louisiana as a young black man purchases a train ticket for the whites-only car. Oh. Mm -hmm. Today we are going to talk about Plessy versus Ferguson, the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision in which the court ruled that racial segregation laws didn't violate the U.S. Constitution as long as the facilities for each race were equal in quality, a doctrine that I'm sure we all recognize became known as separate but equal. Yep. So take a sip of coffee or pour yourself a stiff drink as long as you aren't driving, because this one is kind of heavy. I am unprepared as I we record know. this uh, not too long before we go to bed. Uh-huh. You're going to have some wonderful dreams after this. <laughs> uh-huh. Anyways, let's get to the depression. Okay, so Homer Adolph Plessy was born in either 1862 or 1863. Um, apparently the record is not quite clear. He was the second of two children in a French-speaking Creole family in New Orleans, Louisiana. His father was a carpenter named Joseph Adolph Plessy, and his mother was a seamstress named Rosa de Berg. They were both mixed-race free people of color in Louisiana at the time. Okay. So Homer's paternal grandfather, Germain Plessy, was a white Frenchman born in Bordeaux um, who lived in the French Saint-Domingue colony before moving to New Orleans during the 1780s. Um, And he was part of a group of thousands of expatriates who fled the Haitian Revolution. There, he met Catherine Meteau, a free woman of color of French and African ancestry. So here's where it gets a little bit tricky. He was white and she was colored in colonial Louisiana. Okay. So obviously, there's a lot of room for potential issues regarding coercion or consent in this particular relationship. Ah, yes. I see where you're going with that now. So at the time, French and Spanish slave colonies in North America, which included the Caribbean, had a system called plassage, which was a recognized extra-legal system in which ethnic European men entered into civil unions with non-Europeans of African, Native American, or mixed-race descent. Mm, okay. So the term plassage comes from the French placer, meaning to place with. The women were not legally recognized as wives, but were known as placees, and their relationships were recognized among the free people of color as something called a left-handed marriage. None of that (laughs) sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. So for anyone not familiar with that term, a left-handed marriage was also known as a morganatic marriage, where marriages between people of unequal social rank, typically a higher-ranking man and a lower-ranking woman. Usually. come from being like, oh, this is my right-hand person, like, this is my, like, best person or whatever, and it's like, left-hand, bleh, who cares? Um, I think, probably partially, I think it's also along the lines of, like, the general population tends to be right-handed, so, like, something in your right hand is, like, your dominant, and something in your left hand is your secondary, um, so I think it, it's along those lines, too, where, like, you know, you have your legal marriage that, like, will enable children to inherit and all that stuff. And then you have your left-handed marriage where I'm sure— Oh, there were, like, two marriages going on at this time? Yeah. 
Did I miss that earlier? No, I just hadn't fully gotten there yet. So okay. we'll, 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 we'll get there a little bit more detail. Just a little yep. bit. Not a ton, but a little yeah. bit. It's, it's also funny that it's called a left-handed marriage and it's the illegitimate one when we put our rings on our left hands. I don't know. Seems weird. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Hmm. Anyways, hmm. back to your great story. Anyway. <laughs> so usually the bride and any children from the marriage would have no claim to any sort of inheritance or titles from the husband or father. But the children were considered legitimate for all other purposes. Okay. And the prohibitions against bigotry still applied. So okay. you couldn't have more than one left-handed marriage. You got the one. <laughs> That's very strange to be like, bigotry still applies. Yeah. Bigamy, um, not bigotry. Oh, you're right. I can't read. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just echoed what you said, and I'm like, that's not the right word, although I bet it'll be applicable, this I mean, topic. It's also bigotry, yeah. because they were only relationships between European white men and women of African or Native American descent. Uh-huh. So bigotry applies as well. Okay, but but yes, no, the laws against bigamy still applied. So to put it in today's terms... If Britain had ever really adhered to this type of system, the marriage of Prince William to Catherine Middleton would have been one of these morganatic marriages. So Prince William, prince, right? Born royal. Mm-hmm. Catherine Middleton is actually not even a noble. Oh, like she okay. is actually like a just regular middle class like type citizen. Um I think her family was given a title after or like when they got engaged. Um but she was not she had no title before they got married. I didn't know that. Yes, fun fact. Um, there's also a like Hallmark movie that's based off their like falling in love story, and it has an actress from Grey's Anatomy in like the later seasons plays Kate Middleton, and I remember watching it and thoroughly being confused because I recognized her from Grey's Anatomy and couldn't fathom why she was using a British accent. Ah. But that's neither here nor there. Back to the United States. Yes. Because <laughs> this modern-day royal stuff is going over my head. So I just have one more comment on this. So no! Britain, however, has had a long and not-so-infrequent history of marrying people of lower social ranks. So the royal family tree entirely would look extremely different than it does now if people had actually adhered to this system. This was much more like mainland Europe kind of version and colonials in the United States. So back to the actual topic. (laughs) Uh, So Jermaine and Catherine entered into a plusage marriage and had eight children, one of whom was Homer's father. And according to pre-Civil War records, his maternal grandparents were both of African descent or mixed race. Many of Homer's ancestors and relatives were property-owning tradesmen, including blacksmiths, carpenters, and shoemakers. So they were doing pretty well for themselves, like overall. Homer's father died in 1869, and his mother remarried to Victor M. Dupart, who was a clerk for the U.S. Postal Service and a part-time shoemaker. Plessy's stepfather was politically engaged, having paid poll taxes in 1869 and 1870 in order to vote, and had joined the unification movement of 1873, which was a civil rights movement promoting political equality, racial unity, and an end to the discrimination in Reconstruction-era Louisiana. And we could go into a whole long tangent about Reconstruction-era Louisiana. But I'm gonna and skip maybe it. someday we will. Maybe. We'll see. It'll be even more depressing than this episode, I think. <laughs> oh, goody. So at this time, black people had gained unprecedented civil rights in Louisiana, like in contrast to before. Mm-hmm. Um, beginning in 1868, all black men could vote if they paid a poll tax. 
don't know how many. I mean, I'm probably sure people can find that that statistics, but it would have been a pretty, pretty high price to pay for most people. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say is like, OK, you're allowed to vote, mm-hmm. but none of you have any kind of standing to yeah. be capable of paying this tax to yeah. vote. Yeah, exactly. So basically, white people, generally speaking, made more money, made more money and weren't as impacted by this poll tax as black people would have been. Yeah. Um, so, well, white people didn't have to pay the poll tax, right? I don't remember exactly. I have a feeling not. It sounds like the way you're describing it, it sounds like it was something that was introduced for freed slaves. Yeah, I think I think it might be. Um, the other thought is that if we're going by this like like equality thing, then they would have found they w- it would have been like oh everyone has to pay this poll tax so it's fair because everyone has to pay it but it's an amount that wouldn't impact most white families whereas it would have yeah. been hard on black families right so the state implemented a racially integrated school system in 1869 and the state legislature legalized interracial marriage in 1870 um and more than 200 black men held elected offices at the state and local levels in the 1870s oh, which okay. i did not know yeah i didn't know that either that was completely news to me however uh-huh. this is where the big buck comes in many of those gains eroded when the union troops left the confederate states or former confederate states in 1877 so once the union was no longer enforcing these statutes and stuff, all the white legislatures flooded back into power and quickly began to defund public education for black people. And they instituted the Louisiana Constitution of 1879, which ended integrated schools completely. Ugh. Yeah. So seeing his rights quickly being removed, Homer followed his stepfather into both shoemaking and political activism. Like peanut butter and jelly. (laughs) Shoemaking and political activism. So Homer married Louise Bordenave in 1888, and in 1889, they moved to Faubourg-Treme, a racially integrated middle-class neighborhood of New Orleans at the time, and he registered to vote in the Six Wards 3rd Precinct. So just a quick note on Faubourg-Treme, it's the oldest black neighborhood in America, the birthplace of both the Southern Civil Rights Movement and jazz, and has a 2008 documentary on its history, which was started in 2000, and somehow all of its films survived Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Wow. So if anyone's interested in learning more about this, like, amazingly culturally rich neighborhood, check out that documentary. It's called Faubourg Treme anyway. It's really good. That anyway, sounds fun. Yeah, no, I'm like, I need to see this now. Yeah. So. So in 1887, Homer served as vice president of the 50-person Justice Protective Educational and Social Club, which was a group dedicated to reforming public education in New Orleans. Not only had Louisiana abolished racially integrated schools in 1879, but many of the public schools in New Orleans were unable to stay open in the 1880s due to a lack of funding, just like in general. Just no public education. Pretty much, yeah. Um, In response, the organization published a pamphlet declaring its intention to collect and build a community library and appealed to the Louisiana state government for, quote, our fair share of public education with safeguards against fraud and manipulation, thereby ensuring good teachers, a full term and all necessary articles for the maintenance of schools, which at this moment we have not. Okay. Um, But as we know, things are going to get uh, considerably worse in the South before they get better. And I do have better with a question mark. 
Yeah, so better because ish. right now it's still also not great. <laughs> better ish? Question mark. Yep. Um, in 1890, the state of Louisiana passed the Separate Car Act, which required separate accommodation for black and white people on railroads, including separate railway cards. A group of 18 prominent black Creole of color and white Creole New Orleans residents formed the Comité de Citoyens, which means Committee of Citizens, to uh, challenge this law. The group contacted attorney and civil rights advocate Albion W. Torje, who agreed to help them bring a test case to court in order to force the judiciary to determine the constitutionality of these um, Jim Crow laws. Yep. So Torje suggested finding someone who had, quote, not more than one eighth colored blood and could pass as white to be the plaintiff. So they're looking for someone who is, by the definition of the country at the time, Mixed race. Yep. But passes for white. So, like, looking right. at someone, you wouldn't go, they're black. Did, so they did that to have, like, to have as the plaintiff that was, plaintiffs are the people doing the accusing, correct? No, plaintiffs are the people being accused. Plaintiffs are being accused. Yes. I thought that was defendants. Also defendant. It's a weird. Oh, okay. So, it's. When you're being brought up on charges, you are the defendant. When you are appealing said charges, you are the plaintiff. (laughs) Okay, I I am caught on. Cool. Um, So they they specifically wanted someone white passing that was not white so that when they brought up these stupid laws, mm -hmm. they would be like, what would you do to this guy? Exactly. How can you enforce this? Right. The really big question in a lot of these Jim Crow era laws were whose right is it to determine whether or not a person is black or not? Yeah. Who is the authority on the matter that will be present at every scene to be able to determine this? And like a really big part of it, too, was that there was no set like, well, how black is black? Well, we also had the one drop rule. Right. Which, mm, yeah. It is a whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah. But, like, the big question was whose right is it to judge where people fall? Because, like, it, that is not something that normal people are qualified Correct. to make an opinion on. Anyway, the attorney hoped that, that by selecting a person of ambiguous racial identity, he would exploit the Louisiana legislature's failure to define race and to force the court to consider the inconclusiveness of scientific evidence on definitive racial categories. Man, every time I ask questions, you already have the answer written. I know. If you just waited, like, one more sentence. <laughs> but then what would I do? Am I, I, I would just be the producer of this show. You answer all the uh, questions already. I was going to say, I should have just been like, well, my next sentence. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, in court, he would eventually argue that a man of one-eighth African ancestry might not even know which race he belongs to. Like, he might not even be aware mm-hmm. that he has African ancestry because it would be, like, several generations back. It might not be something he's aware of. Right. Um, so a railroad employee would be even less qualified to decide the question of race and determine in what car a mixed-race individual should sit. So, fun fact— the railroads overwhelmingly opposed the Separate Car Act. Nice. Yeah. Um, before you get too excited, it's because it raised their operating costs, so it was purely, like, financially motivated. Capitalism. Yeah. Um, but it forced them to use additional cars that might only be at half capacity, so, you know, it upped operating costs and all that stuff, which companies, the bottom line is all yep. that matters. Yep, yep, yep. 
In this case, it put them on the better side of history, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> um, so some companies enforced the law while others did not. So the group recruited Daniel Desdoon, the son of a group member Rodolph, and eventually enlisted Louisianaville and Nashville Railroad Company to participate in the group's plan. So they contacted railroad companies beforehand to be like, hey, we're going to do this thing. Are you in? And they were like, sure. All right. Okay. We'll help you stage this, you know, thing. So on February 24th, 1892, Daniel Destoon purchased a first class ticket on a train bound for Mobile, Alabama. After he sat in a whites only car, the conductor stopped the train and a private detective that was hired by the committee arrested him. The prosecution dropped the case against him in May of 1829, however, because the Louisiana State Supreme Court ruled that the separate car act didn't apply to interstate railroad trips. Okay. So, good try, but apparently you had to read the fine print on said law before you could combat it. So now, to bring this test case to court, the committee had to stage another incident on a train trip entirely within Louisiana state lines. So they recruited Homer Plessy to be their plaintiff and contacted another railroad against a separate car act, the East Louisiana Railroad, and declared their intentions to stage an act of civil disobedience. And apparently, the railroad was in on it. So on June 7th, 1892, which is our event, mm -hmm. Homer bought a first-class ticket on the East Louisiana Railroad running between Press Street Depot in New Orleans and Covington, Louisiana, and took a seat in the whites-only passenger car. When conductor J.J. Dowling came to collect Homer's ticket, he told Homer to leave the whites-only car. Homer refused. The conductor stopped the train, walked back to the depot, and returned with Detective Kane. Detective Kane and some other passengers forcibly removed Homer from the train, where Kane then arrested him. The committee arrived at the jail, arranged for him to be released, and paid his $500 bond the following day by offering up a committee member's house as collateral. Whoa. I did A, I did not know you could do collateral when arranging for bail. I did not know someone's house was only worth $500. Well, Although I guess in 1800 money, that would be considerably more now, huh? Yeah. Considering uh, not all that long ago, our parents say at age, you could get like a house for $20,000. Yeah. Ah, capitalism. Yikes. Anyway, so before, you know, my depression sets in, on October 28th, 1892, Plessy was arraigned before Judge John Howard Ferguson in the Orleans Parish Criminal District Court. Here, Plessy and his team petitioned the state district criminal court to throw out the case, State versus Homer Adolph Plessy, on the grounds that the state law requiring East Louisiana Railroad to segregate trains had denied him his rights under the 13th and 14th Amendments, which provide for equal treatment under the law. Yep. However, Judge Ferguson ruled that Louisiana had the right to regulate railroad companies while they operated within state boundaries, and that the Separate Cars Act constituted a reasonable use of Louisiana's Police power. There are air quotes around uh -huh. those words. Quote, there is no pretense that he, Plessy, was not provided with equal accommodations with the white passengers, Ferguson declared. He was simply deprived of the liberty of doing as he pleased. Yes. Yes, and that's the point. Life, liberty, <laughs> pursuit of happiness. Yup. Yep. Yup. So four days later, Plessy petitioned the Louisiana Supreme Court for a writ of prohibition to stop his criminal trial, which he was awarded temporarily while the court reviewed the case. In December 1892, the court upheld Judge Ferguson's ruling and denied Plessy's attorney's subsequent request for a rehearing. In speaking for the court's decision that Ferguson's judgment didn't violate the 14th Amendment, Louisiana Supreme Court Justice Charles Erasmus Fenner cited a number of precedents, including two key 
cases from northern states. And this is where I get even more sad. Uh Uh-huh. The Massachusetts Supreme Court had ruled in 1849, before the 14th Amendment, I might add. Uh Uh-huh. Doesn't make it okay, but just saying. Nope. Remember that uh, that Netflix thing that we were talking about the the kunk on Britain or kunk on history, yes. <laughs> where it was like the the U.S. had an important choice to make to re- acknowledge that uh, black people were people or pretend that they didn't. <laughs> yeah. So. In 1849, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were constitutional. In answering the charge that segregation perpetuated racial prejudice, which it does, the Massachusetts court famously stated, quote, This prejudice, if it exists, is not created by law and probably cannot be changed by law. What? Basically, they're saying... change anything by law. Basically, (laughs) they're saying that prejudice is so ingrained that it can't be fixed. Yeah. Which is messed up. Messed up. You can change anything with a law. Uh Uh-huh. And then you enforce said law. Right. And over time, people figure their nonsense out. Uh Uh-huh. Or get fined into oblivion and thrown in jail. Either one. Take your pick. Anywho, we we know (laughs) how this works out, so. Um, So good job, Massachusetts. Not. Uh Uh-huh. The other case Fenner cited was from Pennsylvania concerning a law mandating separate rail cars for different races. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court stated, quote, to assert separateness is not to declare inferiority. It is simply to say that following the order of divine providence, human authority. (laughs) (laughs) Let me finish. (laughs) Human authority ought not to compel these widely separated races to intermix. You're not inferior. The divine just frowns upon your existence. Big yikes. <laughs> big, big yikes. Good job, Pennsylvania. I hate it. I feel like that's saying worse than inferior. Inferior. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even saying like, oh, well, human, like, human humanness, human fallibility has created this prejudice. No, you're saying that, like, there is a divine entity that has decided that you are less than. Yep. Which is the most messed up thing I can even imagine. Anyway, before I get too mad, we need to move on. Keep on going. (laughs) So on January 5th, 1893, Plessy's attorney, James Walker, applied for a writ of error, which the U.S. Supreme Court accepted. As previously planned with the committee, LBNW Torget would represent Plessy and the test case before the Supreme Court, and he enlisted the aid of former Solicitor General Samuel F. Phillips as co-counsel. So, like, this is a pretty hard-hitting, like, lawyer team here. Yeah, Like, this is a, a... pretty darn good um, case, like, people to have on on your side. Um, So the case first appeared on the docket in January of 1893, but Torget wrote to the committee voicing his concerns that they would lose. In the three years since the group had first organized this whole demonstration, the court's makeup had changed drastically under President Benjamin Harrison and had taken on a much more segregationist tilt. (laughs) Sound familiar? Yes. So he hoped that unsympathetic justices would change their minds with time or retire or die. Uh Writing in one letter, quote, the court has always been the foe of liberty until forced to move on by public opinion. The court has always been the foe of liberty is a great sentence. 
It might be my favorite thing I've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> oh, man. That that screams um, Fallout, uh, the, the game. Mm-hmm. There is a ending where you activate a big mech called, um, uh, what what is it? What is it called? Liberty Prime, I think is what it's called. And as it runs around, it just shouts like American propaganda while blowing up (sighs) the Chinese that are invading the U.S. Because that's like the premise of Fallout. Um, And at one point, he just uh, yells out, democracy is not negotiable. Oh, my gosh. Well, it reminds me of that meme that I've been seeing going around a lot recently, which is like the the whole like the U.S. justice system or whatever has been planning for like a Gen Z rebellion essentially and it's like everything's like so even in their like worst case scenario they're the villain they're the bad guys they're the the bad guys the US in their scenario planning is is the the bad bad guys guys. (laughs) yeah like what 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 about this whole situation makes sense to you? Because it, it's just it so, baffles me. It's just so funny how how much our government leans into all of the stereotypes about it and is completely blissfully ignorant that they're doing it. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, um, this has been our hard left moment. <laughs> Since a case could take several years to actually be called before the Supreme Court, the hope was that there would be a delay until closer to the 1896 U.S. presidential election, hoping that that election might influence the outcome in their favor. Unfortunately, the court was uh, called the case in spring of 1896, and the oral arguments of Plessy v. Ferguson were held on April 13th. Torget argued that the state of Louisiana had violated the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery and the 14th Amendment that stated, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty and property without due process of law. He also argued that segregation laws inherently implied that black people were inferior and therefore stigmatized them with a second class status, which also violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which reads, quote, nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. In a PBS article, Henry Louis Gates Jr., I worked at Harvard with him. Side note. <laughs> I literally never met the man, but I always, every so often I would get emails that he signed and I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I was like, yeah. So in the PBS article, he stated that the main focus of the suit was not the concern of equal accommodations, but the unconstitutionality of the Separate Cars Act, mainly who was qualified to judge the race of another person. It wasn't the the problem of the act itself. It was who has this right to judge? Like what yep. makes this person qualified? You have to assign someone and give them response, clear delineated responsibilities right. and like education status yes. that says... This is what makes them qualified to do this arbiting. Right. What are those conditions? If you cannot provide them, you cannot perform the arbiting. Right. And none of that was covered in this thing at all. Yep. So one of the main reasons the committee had picked Plessy was because he didn't look black. Mm -hmm. Because when the train conductor asked, as he was required to do by this law, if Plessy was a colored man, Plessy replied yes despite his ability to have lied and said no. Yep. If train conductors could be authorized to classify men and women by race, according to visible and, as in Plessy's case, invisible cues, where would the line drawing stop? Mm-hmm. Torget therefore argued that, quote, why may it 
not require all redheaded people to ride in a separate car? Why not require all colored people to walk on one side of the street and whites on the other? Why may it not require every white man's house to be painted white and every colored man's black? Why may it not require every white man's vehicle to be of one color and compel the colored citizens to use one of a different color on the highway? Why not require every white businessman to use a white sign and every colored man who solicits customers a black one? Mm -hmm. Little ahead of times on the sign there, but... um, uh-huh. Yeah, it's off tracks. Think, think, but, think they uh, predicted something that would happen uh, about 50 years later. Shocking. Yep. Um, and all because of this case. So he was quite literally right in the way everything, like, where does the line stop? Mm-hmm. Where do we draw the line? And who's qualified to make that choice? All really good questions that very sadly are not correctly answered in this case. Anyway, yep. so despite some very valid points, obviously, from Torget, on May 18, 1896, the Supreme Court issued a 7-to-1 decision against Plessy that upheld the constitutionality of Louisiana's train car segregation laws. Yay. Uh-huh. Justice Henry Billings Brown delivered the majority opinion, first dismissing any claim that the Louisiana law violated the 13th Amendment, which, in the majority's opinion, did no more than ensure that black Americans had the basic level of legal equality needed to abolish slavery. Tell me you're only willing to do the bare minimum without telling me you're only willing to do the bare minimum. I don't know. I think they very directly stated this is the bare minimum and the law will do nothing else. Yep. I mean, yes, like, that is the bare minimum that they're all willing to do. So next, the court considered whether the law violated the Equal Protection Clause, concluding that although the 14th Amendment was meant to guarantee legal equality of all races in America, it was not intended to prevent social or other types of discrimination. Hmm. The court also rejected Torje's argument that segregation laws marked black Americans with a, quote, badge of inferiority, and said that racial prejudice could not be overcome by legislation. Quote, We consider the underlying fallacy of the plaintiff's argument to consist in the assumption that the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. If this be so, it is not by reason of anything found in the act, but solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction on it. Of course. My question here is why keep the races separate if there really isn't any sort of discrimination? What purpose does that serve? Like, if there is no sort of discrimination, then why would you even care? Well, because it was moral purity. That was what they thought. Which inherently is discriminatory anyway. Well, they (laughs) very clearly stated in one of those cases that they don't believe that discrimination can happen in a social matter. It can only happen in a legal matter. That's true. All right. Yep. Yep. I mean. I mean, that's what they were saying. You're right. Still sucks. Yep. Anyway, so Brown's opinion ended with a note on the subject of Plessy's racial uh, identity under the law. He wrote that while the question of whether Plessy was legally black or white may have bearing on the outcome of the criminal case, legal definitions of racial categories were an issue of state law that was not before the U.S. Supreme Court. So basically he said, yeah, the perceived blackness of an individual under this law would be relevant, but the issue of who gets to determine how black someone is with absolutely no guidance isn't relevant. But they said that it's relevant to the states, not to the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. So they're just kicking the can. Yep. Basically, they're saying it's a problem, but it's not our problem. (laughs) Yep. So ultimately, Brown deferred to Louisiana law to determine whether Plessy was legally black or white. So what about that lone dissenter, you might wonder, Mm -hmm. since it was seven to one? Well, that was Justice John Marshall Harlan. 
He strongly disagreed with the court's conclusion that the Louisiana law did not imply that black people were inferior, and he accused the majority of being willfully ignorant on the subject, writing, quote, Everyone knows that the statute in question has its origin in the purpose not so much to exclude white people from railroad cars occupied by blacks as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons. Mm -hmm. The thing to accomplish was, under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks, to compel the latter to keep to themselves while traveling in railroad passenger coaches. No one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary. Which, I mean, basically the majority is saying. By being like, oh, it's not discrimination. It's, you know, whatever. Also, fun little uh, tidbit that you've mentioned a few times. You keep saying seven to one. Was that the total count of the Supreme Court? At the time, yes. Weird. It's almost like the court can expand. (laughs) Yep. Yep. (laughs) Interesting that everyone claims that that's never happened. But, whoa, we have a seven to one about a hundred years ago? Uh Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This is my dead inside face. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Our friend Harlan here uh, uh, supported this argument by pointing out that the Louisiana law contained an exception for, quote, nurses attending children of the other race. So this exception allowed black women who were nannies to white children to be in the white-only train cars, showing that Louisiana law only allowed black people to be in white cars only if it was obvious that they were social subordinates or domestics. Yeah, the, that they were indentured servants. It was mm-hmm. just slavery of another name. Yep. Or like under the, quote, employ of someone. Right. Or in some sort of clearly subordinate role. Yeah. Um, he argued that the Constitution was colorblind in matters of law and civil rights, despite the way many white Americans of the time considered themselves superior to Americans of other races. I would say the Constitution is colorblind. It should be. Everyone is equal under the law. Yep. Whether or not we enforce that or uphold it Mm -hmm. is the real question. Um, So, interestingly, Harlan predicted that the Plessy decision would eventually become as infamous as the court's 1857 decision, Dred Scott versus Sanford, in which the court ruled that black Americans could not be citizens under the U.S. Constitution and that its legal protections and privileges could never apply to them. Nope. Never, ever. The Constitution has never been misinterpreted in any way. Nope. Never. And he's right. Like, we know Plessy versus Ferguson Like, you say Plessy versus Ferguson, you know what it's about. Yeah. You say Dred Scott, you know what it's about. Yep. Like, he was right. He predicted that pretty well. He also predicted a greater state influence in matters of race, writing, quote, We shall enter upon an era of constitutional law when the rights of freedom and American citizenship cannot receive from the nation that efficient protection which heretofore was unhesitatingly accorded to slavery and the rights of the master. So basically saying... We're doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. <laughs> um, and as anyone who is aware of American history might know, his concerns were right on point as states proceeded to institute segregation-based laws that became known as the Jim Crow system. In addition, from 1890 to 1908, Southern states passed new or amended constitutions, including provisions that effectively disenfranchised blacks and thousands of poor white people. So the entirety of the black population of these states lost their rights to vote and many other things. Yep. And they also went, well, the poor poor white people are collateral damage at this point because we are so against letting black people do anything. 
Yep. And also remember, this is a very good reminder uh, for anybody who's listening, learning, etc., that the government and the people in power have always tried to make equivalencies and push other people down who they say are part of a different category so that those people continue to hate the people that they were pushed down with. Mm -hmm. That is intentional. Yep. That is an intentional part of systemic oppression yeah. and keeping other people feeling like they're part of the superior uh, class without actually gaining any of the benefits of it. They're just yeah. being used as a tool to hate each other instead of hating upward. Hate upward. I was just going to say, send your hate upward, please. Yep. Yes. All the way up that social political ladder, please, to the top. So... I also feel the need to point out, before we get all warm and fuzzy feelings about Harlan, he really wasn't that great of a guy. He had other issues in terms of racial equality. He was just on the right side of it in this particular instance. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are hardly any people in history uh, that are on 100% the right side. There are people still learning every day that they were on the wrong side yesterday. Yeah, that's very true. And people learn and grow and make change their minds and make better decisions as they grow up and learn new things. And that's always a good thing. Learning and growing is a good thing. And you shouldn't be ashamed of it. Yeah, it's also just a good thing for people who maybe are younger and are learning about some of these topics and being, you know, maybe being dissuaded, like, oh, man, everyone was crap. And it's like, yeah, everyone was crap. And you should look at everybody in a really discerning light and, you know, make sure that the people that you're supporting are, um, you know, honest with where their failures were because everybody had them. And if anyone tells you that things were better at any point in time, that person is ignoring someone else's oppression. Yeah. It's always been bad, and anyone who tells you differently is pretending. Yeah. (laughs) Basically. Um, And we will all always make mistakes because we're not in a good state of the world right now either. Nope. So we are st- we are still all learning. There's probably plenty of stuff that will be recorded in this podcast that in 10 years, m- not even, you know, maybe taboo. And yeah. we will learn from it and grow from it. Yeah. Some Nip- people just don't get the chance because it's so long ago. They, they die before yeah. the culture grows. <laughs> yeah. But their growth was things like these court, these court yep. cases. Yeah. Yeah. And growth is always good. Don't get hung up on the process because learning and growing and moving forward is always a good thing. Also, don't overly praise yourself for learning and growing because it kind of washes away the mistakes that you may have made. And you can't really do that either. In order to grow, you need to acknowledge what has happened. Humility. Yeah. Humility is like the key to success, I think. (laughs) And I think we've uh, rambled a little bit. But a key point of that is things are still bad. Just make sure if you're punching, you punch up. <laughs> Alrighty then. So, the legacy of Plessy versus Ferguson. Well, first off, Plessy's criminal trial went ahead in Ferguson's court in Louisiana on February 11th, 1897. He pleaded guilty to violating the Separate Cars Act, which carried a punishment of a $25 fine or 20 days in jail. He opted to pay the fine. Homer Plessy died on March 1st, 1925, and was buried in the 
de Berg Blanco family tomb in St. Louis Cemetery Number no. 1 in New Orleans. I'm fascinated by the fact that St. Louis Cemetery Number no. 1. So that implies that there's more that are numbered, just same name, just new number. Uh-huh. Um, the separate but equal doctrine remained valid until 1954. When it was overturned by the Supreme Court decision Brown versus the Board of Education and later completely outlawed by the Federal Civil Civil Rights Act of 1964. While Plessy didn't involve schools or education, it provided the legal basis of separate school systems for the following 58 years. Mm -hmm. Across the country, too, not just in the South. Yeah. we All across the nation. We covered the North had its bad moments. Oh, yeah. And it continued having them. Yep. There are some who are making lemonade out of their ancestors' lemons, however. On February 10th of 2009, Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson, descendants of the players on both sides of the Supreme Court case, announced the formation of the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation for Education, Preservation, and Outreach. Their mission is to, quote, create new and innovative ways to teach the history of civil rights through understanding this historic case and its effects on the American conscience. On February 12th, 2009, the foundation assisted in the placing of a historical marker at the corner of Press and Royal Streets, the site of Homer Plessy's arrest, and a portion of Press Street was renamed after Plessy in 2018. On January 5th, 2022, Plessy was pardoned by John Bell Edwards, governor of Louisiana, posthumously relieving him of his conviction. And that is Plessy versus Ferguson, a ruling we frequently hear brought up, but maybe you didn't know a whole lot about. Also, as a quick fun fact, there's actually no known photograph of Homer Plessy, although there are several, there's a couple of photographs of someone named PBS Pinchback, who is a former governor of Louisiana and a fellow member of the this committee mm-hmm. that's been mislabeled as his photograph, but oh. it's not actually him. Interesting. So there's actually no known photograph of Homer Plessy, which I found fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's that is that whole situation. Yeah. And also, since we were, you know, kind of getting a little preachy soapboxy yeah. during this one, um, just in case any of our listeners are more centrist or like consider themselves like, oh, I'm fiscally conservative, but socially liberal and all that stuff. Um, I I guarantee someone listening to this does not realize that what we just did is kind of critical race theory. So just remember that when you hear that being brought up as a negative, critical race theory is just talking about this stuff and teaching this stuff. Yeah. And like what the descendants of of Plessy and Ferguson are doing is critical race theory. Yeah. They are coming together to help understand what happened and put it and like learn from it. Like the whole idea of critical race theory is that you learn what happened and understand why it happened so that it doesn't happen again. Like, the point isn't to make people feel bad about where they came from or to criticize people for things that happened hundreds of years ago. It's to just know that it happened. It's to recognize that it happened and accept that sometimes really bad things happen in history, but we need to know about them and understand them so that we can move forward and do better. And us two, we're not the the most qualified to talk about this kind of stuff. Fair, but, very fair. Yep, we're, we are both white. Yep. Um, so if you are more interested in learning about events in black history or critical race theory, definitely find someone who is a person of color or a person mm-hmm. of global majority to listen to about that. We just... 
we have a platform and a responsibility to do what we can and acknowledge that there's people who can do it better than us. Yes, definitely. Anywho. Anyway. (laughs) Before we go on to our fun facts, we have a little bit of a call to action. And our call to action is go to our website, halfwitpodcast.com. If you like puzzles, there's currently a puzzle up there if you want to figure out what we're working on in the background. It's just right on the homepage. It's not hard to find, but it might be difficult to figure out. That's the goal anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Um, If you want to submit topics to us so that we can figure out, you know, when in the year they belong and talk about them and educate people on things or educate ourselves on things. I don't know a lot of what we talk about. stuff we learn. Yeah. You can either email us at halfwitpod at gmail.com or the pin tweet on our Twitter is a at halfwithistory is the form that we have so that you can submit topic requests. We also have a link to that form down in our show notes. Yes. So check that out. And speaking of the show notes, thank you to The Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. And you can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Yes. Okay. Is it fun fact time? It is fun fact time. So... I am going to talk about on June 9th of 1945, and that is kind of a shocking year to me for this fun (laughs) fact to exist. On June 9th of 1945, Warner Brothers cartoon A Gruesome Twosome, starring Tweety, premieres in the USA. Yeah, baby. (laughs) Interesting. Yep. What it that's a that's a I I don't think I expected that to be the year that that happened. Nope, me either. So since I'm not going to quite get off my my soapbox just yet, on June seventh, nineteen sixty five, the Supreme Court of the U.S. decides on Griswold v. Connecticut, effectively legalizing the use of contraception by married couples. Nice, good, good job, good. Don't mess it up, guys. Don't <laughs> mess it up. Please don't mess it up. And actually, if you want. I think we talk about that a little bit in um, we have an episode called The Rock Rebound. So if you if you want to learn more about contraception, and I think we do talk about that case briefly in um, episode 43, The Rock Rebound. Mm -hmm. The little teaser stinger for that is uh, this week. Kylie learns a bit more about where we live and she discovers a forefather of women's bodily autonomy is just down the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I do touch on this one. This like kind of briefly in there. Yes. That one's also a, an interesting, interesting tidbit. So, yeah, fun, fun facts all around, guys. <laughs> That's right. Woo-hoo. Well, anyways, thank you all for listening. As always, I've been your halfwit, and I'm your historian, and we hope you listen next time. Bye.